Good morning, everyone. Good to see you guys. Good to see you. My name's Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church Arlington, and it's my joy to um, be with you this morning, and we're opening up God's Word back again in the book of Revelation. You guys enjoying that? Yes, laughing. Good. Good sign. I'm really enjoying it. I know you guys are too, even though you might have lots of questions, and um, there's a glory in it that is unique to this book. And so it's really important for us to push into it, and we're going to be doing that again this morning, and we're going to be doing it in chapter 5. And chapter 5, chapters 4 and 5, serve a unique and very important purpose in the book of Revelation because the rest of the book assumes this sequence. It assumes this understanding of the heavenly throne room of the temple in heaven where God is and all of the action that comes down from the rest of the book is coming down from this place. And so it's really important. It's also beautiful. You probably aren't anywhere else in scripture going to see such a clear and um, compelling picture of what God has done for the world and for people. And so that's why when we are singing songs, a lot of the language is pulled right out of these two chapters because it's just the most beautiful artistic way of describing God's work on our behalf. And so um, I hope that you guys enjoy this. It is a wonderful chapter, um, one of the richest in all of Scripture. And um, as I was reading it, I was reminded of something that I didn't want to remember. And that was that I used to work in a restaurant, and if you guys know me and my personality, I am not uniquely suited to work in a restaurant as a server, because I would rather be by myself. And um, something happened to me, and it's common for people who work in a restaurant industry and are servers, and especially in like high capacity and high volume restaurants, to have what are called server nightmares, And so some of you might know these, and I'm sorry if you do, because they're terrible things. You get done working about an eight-hour shift, and you go home, and it's really late, and it's been crazy all day. And so it's just too late to do anything else, so you just go to sleep. And of course, your brain is not like settled down yet, and so you go right back to work in your dreams. But this time, it's worse, because... Everything that can go wrong does go wrong in a million different ways. And so for me, one of the, one of the ones that I remember very um, powerfully is that I'm like stuck at the little um, system where you enter in people's orders and you're like, I'm there and I'm going like in super slow motion. But everybody else is going at normal speed. And I'm the only one working there apparently because there's no other staff to help out. And I just see like there's table after table sitting down And I am, like, still trying to type in the first letter of something. And it's terrible because there's this tension between what I want, which is I want everyone to have a good time. I want everyone to be served well. I want um, people not to be mad at me, ultimately, and what is happening. And this dream just kind of, like, opens up that tension, and it's unsolvable. And the only way to, wake up, to solve it is to wake up and like sweating, heart racing. It's like, I might as well have just been working this whole night for as much rest as I got. But that, it reminded, this chapter reminds me of that. Because um, 
John experiences something like that. And so we're going to dive into this. It's chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. Follow along as we read it, and then we'll kind of go through it together. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Please pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for how you, um, how you have given us this book and how you communicate to us through it. And God, as um, we dive in this morning, I ask that your spirit would be here with us, that we, would, that we would understand, that we would believe these words, Lord, that they would not just glance off of um, the surface of our brain, but that they would be pressed deep into our hearts into our souls, into our minds, and that we would be changed, Lord, and that we would know what it means to worship you in a different way, and that we would join in all of creation as we worship you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's really simple, um, this, this chapter. It's super simple. Jesus is worthy. That's what it's communicating. And it's showing you and it's explaining it to you um, in some really cool ways, cool and important ways. But the main idea is really simple. Jesus is worthy. And so as we walk through this, we're going to go through kind of like the three main um, kind of movements of this text. 
The first is like, okay, why does someone need to be worthy? Why do we need someone who is worthy? The second is explaining why Jesus is worthy. And then finally, we're going to look at our response to Jesus being worthy. So our need for someone who is worthy, Jesus is worthy, and why, and our response to that. And so these first four verses, really, I kind of summarize as, this is John's grief. So John is our representative in the throne, in the throne room, in the temple, in the heavenly temple. He gets brought up, and this is the second time he's kind of having this intimate encounter with the presence of God. The first is back in chapter one, remember, he sees Jesus and he falls down and Jesus says, hey, it's okay. Do not fear John. And then he pulls him up and then he, Jesus gives him the seven letters to the churches. And in those seven letters, we see the church as really messed up. It's persecuted. It is not, it doesn't look like it's winning. It's also mixed. It's not pure. It has, it's kind of um, infiltrated by false teaching and idolatry and false worship. And so you see um, this difference between, okay, Jesus sees the church in a different way, and he's showing that to John, and now he brings him back up into the throne room in chapter 4, and John sees the glory of God in a new way, and it's blinding. He can't even describe it except for by saying, it looks kind of like this, it looks like that. Imagine the most beautiful thing that you can see. Yeah, it's like that, but like times a billion. And there's just kind of this awestruckness to chapter 4, where John is just kind of like, he's like, wow, this is crazy. And he can't even look directly into the glory of God, but he's kind of looking around it. And so now in chapter 5, introduced into this scene is a scroll. And so think about, if you're John, John is an apostle. He's sent by Jesus to carry on the work of making disciples, building up the church, preaching the gospel. Okay, but John's in prison. He's stuck on an island. So if you're sent somewhere and you're stuck on an island, that is not good. He also just got these seven descriptions of churches that he has likely helped steward and has poured himself into, and it's a pretty lousy report card. And now we see this scroll come up, and so we have to understand what the scroll is. The scroll is in the right hand of God, and it's representing the perfect will and purpose of God as he executes his sovereignty in judging the earth and ruling the earth. So it's the will of God for the entire universe. And so John sees this, and he has this image of like this beautiful, perfect glory of God as it is in the heavenly temple. And then he has this kind of haunting memory. He's like, oh yeah, the seven churches. Oh yeah, my family, my relationships, my work, my sin as it's impacted all of those. And then it gets worse because he says, okay, we have this. This is the scroll. This is going to explain everything. It's going to make everything okay. It's going to make everything right. No one can open it. 
No one can open it. And when I thought of this, I thought of a couple things. First, I thought of um, when I was working in substance abuse and with people who had severe addictions. One of the things that um, I kind of was able to hear from some of the stories was that the first time somebody uses heroin, it's like this euphoric, overwhelming, like just pleasure that surges through your entire body. And then you spend the rest of your life trying to recreate that. And you can never get back to it. And you give everything to try and get it. And so when I think of John, he has just seen the glory of God, no sin. And he's looking down through that sea of glass. And he's seeing all of the potential that was created into the universe that was good without sin. And then he has that haunting memory of sin and the gap, the chasm that's growing between what should be and what is good and beautiful and true and what sin has made of the world. And so he's totally overwhelmed by this. He's completely haunted by it. And so this gap is kind of... um, It's present for us, too. It's not just John. We all feel this. I know we do. Imagine the experience of seeing your life, every relationship you had, every thing that you did, every thought you had, every desire of your heart. Imagine seeing that, but no sin. Imagine how amazing that would be, how good it would be and then it vanishes. No one can open it. No one can bring it about. Man, don't we, don't we try and open that scroll ourselves? We want that so bad. We want to do it. We want to do it. No one is worthy. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to break the scroll and look into it. And so the second movement, thankfully, chapter 5 doesn't stay there very long. It moves right into this elder, and he says to John, he says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So emerging into this scene is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. It's Jesus It's John's friend who walked among him. And he sees between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, it's a lion, but it's a lamb. And it's a lamb who is standing as though it had been slain. Seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to the earth. And so you see this description of Jesus. We're talking about why he's worthy, and these titles tell us exactly why he's worthy. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay, so this is fulfilling the promise that God had made to Israel that there would be a king that would emerge from the tribe of Judah who would be God's king, a faithful king, a king that would not mislead or abuse Israel and who would establish Israel in the land forever with God. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
He's also the root of David. The root of David, David and God had this special relationship, and God made this promise to David and said, yes, David, from the tribe of Judah is a king, and it's going to be your descendant. It's going to be from you, and he's going to be eternal. That, that king is not going to have any end to his reign, and it's going to be perfect. So Jesus, in this way, he's the embodied reality of God's faithfulness to his promises. And so all of, all of that um, richness is loaded into these terms. But it doesn't stop there, and thank goodness it doesn't, because if the king is the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's the righteous king who's going to do justice perfectly on the earth, there is no redemption in that. And so it's not just the lion, but he's also the lamb. And so what does it mean How do we understand Jesus to be worthy because he's the slain lamb? Well, the lamb also has rich history in the history of Israel. The first first thing that we have to know is that the lamb is representative of the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb, think back, Israel enslaved in Egypt. All the plagues don't work. Pharaoh still is enslaving them. The Passover lamb needs to be slaughtered so that the last final plague passes over the house of Israel and God does not exact um, justice and judgment on the firstborn sons as he does for everybody who doesn't have the Passover lamb. And it triggers the liberation of God's people from slavery. And so Jesus as the Passover lamb, the slain lamb in this sense, is representative of their liberation from slavery, from external forces of evil. So Jesus being the slain lamb means for God's people, no external forces are going to hold us or defeat us. And this is so important for us and for the church throughout all the ages, no matter what it looks like, no external forces will be victorious over you. But there's also another um, layer of meaning to the lamb, especially a lamb in a temple. And that is the sacrificial lamb, the provision for sin. So Jesus is also the slain lamb in the temple, being that perfect sacrificial lamb for the sins of Israel. In this context, the sacrificial work that takes place in the temple is fulfilled by Jesus. And that's why there's no other sacrifices taking place. Everything else is happening in the temple as you would expect, except for there's no sacrifices. Jesus is the living sacrifice. And that is a contradiction of terms. A living sacrifice? No, sacrifices are dead. They're killed. They spill their blood. And so implicit in all of this is this idea of Jesus as defeating death, his resurrection and ascension is assumed. And that is a stamp of his vindication, his righteousness. Death had no power over him because he had no sin. And so he was slain, but now stands. Therefore, we can have confidence that even though we are slain and we will die, we will also raise with him and be with him. So this temple scene is showing the response also. 
But before we get there, we have to, we have to kind of slow down and enter into the text again. Because that's what this text will do. It's going to put the question to you, are you a slave to sin? Do you understand yourself as in bondage, in slavery, unable to liberate yourself, unable to rip yourself out of your slavery? Because you're not worthy. And no matter what you do, no matter how long you spend with that scroll trying to hold on and bridge the gap between your expectations and even God's expectations and his perfections and your reality, you're never going to be able to do it. You're a slave. You are enslaved. You need someone to set you free. And so understanding yourself as in bondage is essential to understanding the worth of Jesus, especially as he is the slain lamb and the power of his blood as liberating force. And so in response to this, you see kind of building around this, um, this scene. He takes the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They submit. It's perfect submission and joyful relief that God is on the throne. And that this vision of what is happening in heaven and the perfection of the temple is coming down to earth and is happening even now. And it's this joyful submission. And so you see this new song break out. They sang a new song. And this is the only place in Scripture where there's reference to this kind of a new song. It's not the song that they used to sing. It's not the songs of being delivered out of Egypt. No, this is a new song. It's a song that recognizes the totality and the depths of the redemptive work of Jesus. And this is something that's important because what we're seeing here is a foreshadowing, a foretaste of what it looks like for the heavenly temple to come to earth. It's we are going to be led in worship and leading all of creation to worship God and to proclaim his praise. Yes, there's, we're going to be doing that in song because at, just as we were singing this morning, There's something beautiful about lifting your voices and the creative expression that it gives and how it elevates the ideas that we're singing about. And so that's why they're saying we're going to sing a new song, but guys, just our existence in the perfected creation are going to bring glory to God. We are going to be priests. What does that mean? As this new temple comes down to earth, the worship center of the entire universe is going to be the earth. And we are going to be priests in that temple. We're going to be mediating God to the rest of creation. We're going to be the perfected image of God to the entire cosmos. This is why the angels are here. This is why the angels are singing about this. Jesus didn't die for the angels. 
He died for people because now the angels get to have God mediated to them through the recreated humanity. And man, they long for that. They want to see that more than we can imagine. And so as we, as we consider this, we have to remember Jesus, he's worthy because he's the lion. And it could have stopped there. God is just and righteous. That's who he is. And he could have reigned over this earth with justice and righteousness as the lion. But that's not what he did. He's also the lamb. And so that means his reign, his justice, and his righteousness is redemptive. He makes provision to a bunch of people who are enslaved to sin, to a universe that is in rebellion to him. And it's Jesus putting on our flesh, living perfectly for us, dying, being slain for us, resurrecting, and now ascending and taking this scroll. And so as we go forward, we're going to see what happens when Jesus opens up the seals. Because that's the action. That's where the action is going. It's like, okay, he has the scroll. Now he's going to start opening the seals. And we have to remember this because when he opens the seals, terrible things happen. It is. It gets violent. It's rough. And so it is so easy for us to start living in fear and thinking that God is, our relationship with God isn't settled. But we have to remember, it's not just the lion, it is also the lamb. And so no matter how bad it gets, and it'll get bad, we live in this world, we understand this, bad things happen, but no matter how bad it gets, our future is secure. And everything is moving us towards that future in a beautiful way. And so one of, one of the things that really um, wraps this up in an important way is um, the Heidelberg Catechism. It's this old catechism. It was a tool to kind of help people understand what, what Christianity is. And um, one of the questions is, how can you be right with God? And that's kind of the question that we're going to be looking at. It, that's going to at least be in the background for the rest of Revelation, because as all this judgment is happening on the earth, it's like, well, how can I be right with God? And so listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism says. How can I be right with God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ. So that, though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding, God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Even so, as if I had never committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. Here's what the Heidelberg Catechism doesn't say. How do you know you're right with God? If you can open the scroll. <laughs> we have to stop opening the scroll. 
Only Jesus is worthy to do that. And so as we go into the rest of the book of Revelation, remember that. And remember that through the rest of your life. Push the blood of the Lamb into every single aspect of your life. It's going to be imperfect. Things are going to happen that just the gap between what is good and what is is going to just be revealed to you. Remember that there is only one who's opened the scroll and he's opening it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this. Um, this reminder, Lord, that oh, you have not forsaken us, that you have not allowed our sin and our rebellion to destroy us completely. Lord, but you have provided, um, you have provided your very self to be with us. And God, we, we thank you that for this entire universe, for this world and everyone in it, you are working your perfect will. And it's coming all from the sovereignty and the glory of Jesus, who has demonstrated his love, his worthiness through his life, death, and resurrection. So Lord, I ask that you would help us believe that. Help us believe that when it, when it looks so unlikely, when it looks like this world is, um, is only going to be destroyed. Lord, help us to believe in the redemptive power of your love for us as demonstrated in Jesus. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.